Stephen Falk had just moved across the country to produce a network TV show. This was his dream. Then he got a call. Like, it doesn't happen. Shows don't still get their plugs pulled before they air. This probably doesn't look good for me. Like, I may never work again. Falk wrote about the experience in a Tumblr post that went viral. And despite his fears, he did work again. After a stint writing on Netflix's Orange is the New Black, he created You're the Worst for the FX Network. It's a romantic comedy of sorts, starring two very flawed people who hook up and inevitably fall in love. So, uh, what you heard about me? Nothing, just that you're the worst. Says the girl who just stole a blender from a wedding. This is Showrunners. I'm Nicholas Carlson, the editor-in-chief at Insider. A showrunner does lots of things, from directing to writing to making sure there's food on set. The showrunner ultimately controls every facet of a TV show, which is why we created Showrunners, the podcast that talks to the people making the shows we love. On this episode of Showrunners, we talk with Stephen Falk about how he rebounded from having his show canceled and how he handles sex, mental health, morality, and more on You're the Worst. All right, well, thanks for joining us on Showrunners. Very nice to have you, Stephen Falk. Thank you. Nice to be here in my own office. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us the story through season three and go. You're the Worst is a story of two sort of narcissistic slightly alcoholic, self-involved, self-destructive people who meet, neither of them believe in love, and yet they fall for each other. And because they're so well-matched and don't judge bad behavior in each other because they put it all out on the table beforehand, they try to make a go of it. And they resist old-fashioned mushy love, and they're successful moderately, but not for long. We're going to do this even though we know there is only one way this ends. Whether in a week or 20 years, there is horrible sadness and pain coming and we're inviting it. God, I love what you think. So the show really follows them. It's, a, it's really just a good old-fashioned rom-com, but sort of told through the lens of someone who watched a lot of cable shows and a lot of British sitcoms where bad behavior is not something that has to then come with moralizing or a a lesson and I was always jealous of that doing TV in America where the likability factor was always important let's talk about you I want to know about your career but I kind of want to like start with this one moment where you put a blog post on Tumblr that lots of people read about a show that got canceled I had been writing um, movies that never got made and selling television pilots that never got made for a a long time and I had a nice, completely anonymous, unsuccessful, successful career. And I worked on Weeds for four years after that because I thought I should have some practical experience. And by the end of my tenure on Weeds, I sold a show to NBC. We shot the pilot while I was still writing on Weeds. It got picked up to series with giant quotes around it. Uh, the most minimal commitment a network can make, which is uh, mid-season six episodes. But, you know, it's something. Yeah. It's like the ugliest boy at school inviting you to prom. Like, you're still going to prom. <laughs> the network putting your show up there. <laughs> but the catch was we had to move to New York to do it because of tax credits. So we moved to New York. The actors moved to New York, and I hired a writing staff. And we shot four episodes, and I got a call one Friday night while I was in the middle of editing and L.A. said, yeah, we're pulling the plug on your show. We're just never going to put it on the air. We're never going to make this. Still don't know why. I have theories. 
I'm the first to admit maybe they were just getting footage and just thought it sucked. Absolutely possible. I think there are probably other things that went into it. And it didn't actually suck, so I don't know. But anyway, I just called the cast and crew and said, the show's over. Sorry, Jeffrey Tambor. Sorry you moved out to New York. You can go back to Palisades. I rented a truck, drove out with the dog. And somewhere around Arizona, this is driving from New York to um, L.A., I decided I should probably, like, like, I had just been sort of silent on social media about the whole thing. And, but, you know, it was on the front page of Hollywood Reporter. Like, it doesn't happen. Shows don't get their plugs pulled before they air, which I, you know, driving 2,000 miles at that point, I was, like, stewing about, like, this probably doesn't look good for me. Like, I may never work again. So I thought, well, maybe I should just talk about it, both for therapy and for career management. And so I just wrote a Tumblr post about it in a really shitty uh, motel in Arizona somewhere. I think I had Taco Bell and a bottle of whiskey. And I posted it and immediately pulled it. I'd been writing on the internet long enough to know that things that you write at two in the morning when you're drunk, you may want to like look at them with fresh eyes in the morning. So that's what I did. A couple of people saw them and emailed me immediately. And then I was in a Starbucks parking lot editing it with the dog and all my bags. And then I uploaded it from their Wi-Fi and then drove to L.A. Anyway, fast forward to like four days later, I was in L.A. When I started getting Google alerts for my name from first just the trade papers, like Hollywood Reporter and Variety, but then then HuffPo and Slate. And it was spreading. I was very measured. I wasn't blaming anyone. I just said... Here's what happens when you work this hard on something and it literally goes away in one phone call. And you framed it as advice to a young writer. Advice to a young writer. <laughs> yeah, that was my clever way of, of couching a too much information post in some format that didn't seem quite as thirsty. And so what happened from there? You know, people who saw that may wonder. What was instructive about that was I realized, and I think... NBC certainly realized, or I was one more piece of evidence that made them realize that they don't own the PR mechanism anymore. I was able to have equal voice, and if not more, for zero dollars. I think Tumblr is free, right? And so I thought that was incredibly instructive. And there was a Hollywood Reporter article then called When Showrunners Attack. And it was about (laughs) me, Dan Harmon, and I think Ryan Murphy. Like, how do you deal with these unhinged showrunners who can just spout off on Twitter and get in fights or tell the truth, as I did, which was my big big sin. But from there, I did nothing, made furniture at my house, and tried to write a screenplay that never went anywhere. And then my old boss, Genji Cohan, said, I just sold a women in prison show to Netflix. Would you want to come work on it? I was like, that sounds dumb, but okay. (laughs) And then uh, as I was starting to write the second season with her and her team, the first season aired, and it was wildly, wildly successful. And so I did that, and in the middle of that, sold this pilot to FX and had to once again leave her. So I think she'll never hire me again. (laughs) How did your show end up uh, happening? So you write a Tumblr post somewhere in Arizona, and then what's the story? I was on Orange is the New Black, right. and I had gone from being a showrunner, and literally I fell asleep on my feet once in the writer's room on the New York show. Yeah. It was that overwhelming a job to where I was just on staff for a showrunner who liked to come in at 10 and leave at 3. If you can get over the ego part of it, yeah. the sheer relief of just being a cog after being the boss... <laughs> is heroin-esque. It is amazing. So I was doing that, and I started a writer's group in my house once a week because I missed running a writer's room. So I wanted to like kind of have the experience, but with wine. 
And so, yeah, so I had like 10 writers that were all working, that all had careers in the industry. And we would get together every week at my house. And so coming down the pike was this FX pitch that I foolishly set because I wasn't creative at the time and I wasn't pitching anything. Usually when you come up with a pitch, you tell your agent, you go over it with them. They're like, okay, cool. And they set up meetings at the networks and Amazon and Netflix and Hulu. And you kind of make the rounds and see if anyone's interested. I wasn't doing that. I had no interest in doing that. I was just still licking my wounds and and being a cog and running this writer's group. And so in the writer's group, I said, oh, I got to do this pitch. And I kind of came up with this idea very spur of the moment. It was on my list of ideas, but just as do a boozy, Britishy, cable-y version of Mad About You. And I pitched it out, and they bought it as I was driving home. Um, Which is not quite selling it in the room, but it was like 20 minutes later. (laughs) So it's close. And the idea really in my mind, or at least my mindset at the time, which is instructive, is that I didn't give a shit if they bought it. I didn't give a shit if they made it. I didn't give a shit if it got on the air. I just wanted to not repeat the experience of bending over perfuming myself uh, making myself as presentable i'm not going to continue with the metaphor but (laughs) but 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 contorting myself artistically to try to please a network that ultimately didn't know what they wanted so they were unpleasable and in doing so contorting your creation uh, beyond recognizability i'd made the show that i really liked and it ended up being this thing that i didn't recognize anymore and didn't like and wasn't pleasing anyone and certainly wasn't pleasing myself. So I just said, well, okay, if I just please myself, then I won't go through any of that. The danger there is you may not be pleasing anyone. Right. So you may not be invited to the prom, <laughs> but at least you won't you know, be there with someone you're embarrassed of wearing a dress that you don't want to be seen in. And the lesson there being, obviously, that sometimes if you just please yourself and you have a honed a strong artistic voice, other people might like it. <laughs> I noticed in uh, this last season, there's a, a scene where Killian says to Jimmy... You never say thank you. And Jimmy turns around and... That's what the money's for! It's a famous line from... Mad Men. Mad Men. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you! That's what the money is for! That's what the money's That's for. That's what the money's for. I love that line. <laughs> well, I didn't write it. Matt Weiner wrote it. Or <laughs> yeah, right. one of his writers wrote it. That line is is sort of meta within meta because yeah. it's an apocryphal story, perhaps, but the notion out there in the ether, and, and I hope Matt doesn't get mad for me saying the, this, but that episode was kind of like Don Draper telling her that I can't be coddling you all the time, I can't be praising all your work, was kind of Matt telling his writing staff, who I, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> that's so, great. I, I didn't even know that. Then it's true. us taking yeah. that, yeah. and I don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> It's a YouTube clip that has been shared uh, <laughs> around my office as well. Uh, just because, you know, it's just such a good line. Anyway, so did you see Mad Men and think, like, just a great show, like all of us thought? Or, I mean, do you feel like there's anything that came out of seeing that that is... is oh, God. I mean, yeah. I mean, shows like that or, or, or Breaking Bad, as we mentioned before, probably influence my show more than most comedies or than a lot of comedies in that there's something about the overarching novelistic storytelling in those shows Mm -hmm. that became a goal for me and my writing staff. When we write the show, and it's just a dumb little basic cable 13-episode show, 
But we do spend a lot of time writing. We spend about six months just writing, which is long for a show. Generally, after like 14 weeks or something, production will start and you'll be sort of overlapping. We do all the writing first and then we do pre-production and then we shoot and then I edit. I'm there for all of it. It makes for a really long year for me, but for me, it's the only way I know how to do it. But we spend a lot of time in the writing process, like really looking at the whole season as a holistic piece. You know, what is the first act of the season? What is the second act? What is the third act? What is the theme of this season? What are sort of uh, the character arcs of this season? We look at it in this sort of big macro way, and then we start sort of filling in the gaps. I'm always saying, well, what's the story? Like, we can't just introduce something and not have it play out. Like, we try to make everything, even props sometimes, have a beginning, middle, and the end. When you start to watch a show like that, you begin to feel that you're in good hands. You begin to relax, and you begin to trust then that the narrators of the of the show, the storytellers know where they're going. Right. Tell me what the showrunner blues are. Showrunner blues are the parts of the job or the time in the job where the different facets, which could all be full-time jobs and probably should be writing, being on set, editing, in my case, directing, and then just general producerial stuff. All these full-time jobs are all requiring your time and all have strict deadlines and clocks ticking louder and louder at the same time. This is the result of partly, you know, there's not three networks anymore. And so if you get a show, you get all the huge staff, but now there's all those networks and budgets are lower opportunities. Yeah. And it's all compounded by my failings as a showrunner to delegate (laughs) properly. Um, But I'm getting better. I promise. Let's talk about the show. Yes. Um, there is a scene in the most recent season where Jimmy's got some box. He brings it in from outside. It turns out to be his father's ashes. But you know, you don't know that during this scene. <laughs> Sounds like a hilarious show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this came for you. People keep bringing the box in. He keeps throwing it out. Gretchen sees him throw the box out the front door, and she's like, "What? We can litter in our own front yard now?" She just chucks her garbage out the front door, and then later in the episode, you know, a nice callback. There's like more stuff out there. And, yep. And so. Littering is terrible, right? Oh, yeah. What is the line in ethics and morals for the characters? Because they're still likable at the end, but like, what is their compass? You know, for, what are the rules for you guys when you're writing it, when you think about what bad things do they do, what don't they do? Or I maybe mean, I'm thinking about two I things. think our, our rules or our compass is guided by what is believable human behavior for the characters we've created, which are a bit extreme, within the world we've created, which is a bit extreme. So in other words, is this something this character might do? Might this character litter? Sure. (laughs) Might this character drive drunk? Yeah, that character might drive drunk. (laughs) Might that character cuckold her husband? Yeah, (laughs) if she heard that cuckolding was a thing and could convince him to let her screw other dudes while he watched and was he desperate enough to keep the marriage that he would go (laughs) along with it i remember getting in a fight way long ago in my career with a girlfriend way long ago in my romantic career (laughs) who read something i had written i think it was a script uh, and the character drove drunk and she was like outraged you can't advocate driving drunk and I, i literally didn't understand her point this character would do that so they're doing it 
if I was Shakespeare and they all stabbed Julius Caesar, I'm not advocating yeah, stabbing not yacht an yacht emperor. emperor. I mean, like we have an alt-right character this season. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Timely. Um, but we started this back in January. Are we saying alt-right is something that should be looked favorably upon? No. Are we condemning it or purely making fun of this character? Probably. But more importantly, is it believable that this character would be taken up by quote-unquote men's rights activists, which are next door to alt-right, given his circumstances yeah. and given the world of the show? Yes. Yeah. A lot of the characters in this show are kind of like a little bit on the edge of terrible. <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah, okay, like, yeah, like like drinking white wine They're when worst, you're pregnant. Right? You know, yeah. Right? You're drinking white wine. Every time I see that, I'm like, what are you doing? I can have one. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and you yeah. should. Yeah, you, yeah. There should be a certain amount of outrage. Yeah. But, you know, this sort of Billy Joel axiom, I'd rather laugh with the sinner than, than yeah. die with the saints. I mean, the sinners have much more fun. The villains are the ones you want to watch. And I don't think of our characters as, as villainous. Shakespeare to Billy Joel. At all. But, yeah, like, you know, do you want to watch... Tony Soprano or Al Swearengen rather do you want to watch Michael Landon in Highway to Heaven yeah I don't know we had Alec Berg on last season of this podcast and he talked about one of the big things that he learned from Larry David is like no hugging no morals and and that he kind of was excited about the innovation beyond the morality play that stories yeah and and you know and and at the same time I don't view our show like that there is a lot of hugging and there are a lot of lessons Episodes come to a a neat end. The difference, I think, is that we tend to then keep filming. So, in other words, like, the graduate ending sort of is a touchstone for us. Like, that movie should have ended when they run out of the church and get on a bus. (laughs) But instead, they keep rolling. And it may be apocryphal that that was just the actors not knowing what to do after the take ended. Hmm. And, but they kept rolling. They get on the bus and they're relieved and she ran out on what was going to be a horrible marriage and he got the girl and they're on the bus and they're excited and they look at each other and they smile and then they slowly look away and their smiles die because smiles <laughs> do because yeah. smiles are hard to maintain. And then the long what if after this or right. what happens next and what are the boring meals that we have that we don't have anything to say to each other anymore? Like right. that's all there in like 20 seconds. <laughs> Of footage, and, and that's what our show likes to explore beyond the tidy endings that we do have. We do have the hugs. Another theme of this show, which is, I guess, one phrase you could use is sex positive. I mean, like, these characters like to have sex. They're not very shy about it. They're, like, giving hand jobs in the backseat of the car. Or, mm-hmm. Well, a friend drives, I should say. You know, I'm from Berkeley. There is a little lefty moralizing and a little social justice warriorism yeah. in everything I do, I think. Part of that, I mean, like I'm raising a daughter, like I I don't want my daughter to ever watch the show, but (laughs) I want to be not part of the solution, but at least not part of the problem in that my female characters have appetites and they eat and they drink and they are not subservient to men and they pass the Bechtel test and they have, (laughs) they have storylines and they are equal because I think women are frankly slightly more interesting than men. How much in your experience in, in your career like do people think about that kind of stuff? I mean the, the Bechtel test is something that comes up on this show a lot. Sometimes I give a showrunner a hard time if it hasn't happened. <laughs> do people think about those kinds of things? Or do they kind of laugh at it or they just hope they pass it or you know? Um, I think people do. I mean I think those things matter and FX for example not to be a homer but I do love my network 
there was a report card a couple years ago about minority and female director representation, and they sort of released scorecards by network, and FX did not do so well. That was very troubling to the people at the top. And so to their credit, I think not in a PR way necessarily, although, you know, they're business people, but out of a true desire to help what was then shown to them as a problem, they made it a goal to have 50% minority and female directors the next season, and they did. So there's a lot of mental illness in this show. Gretchen has this interesting... Re- Let's talk about her reaction to therapy. <laughs> She's like, she just hates her therapist, stalks her therapist. Hate is a strong word. I think in the writer's room, we think, okay, Gretchen is going to be in therapy. What is the best version of that? What might her attitude be? Yeah. We talk about that. And she may be defensive and combative. What's the best version of being defensive and combative? Well, not literally fighting. That would not be believable that she would be retained as a client. But okay, well, she can, instead of sitting in the chair, because she, she could sit in the corner and eat pistachios and play on her phone um, <laughs> rather than doing it and also then bring Jimmy in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Gretchen, you said you wanted Jimmy here because he can help tell the story of your depression? All right, what? Can you tell me why you're here? Nope. Can you? I thought the happy pills were supposed to fix me. He had notes. What notes? The proposal is perfect. Talk therapy along with medication is the most effective long-term approach to managing depression. You mean beating depression? Winning depression. Oh, I like That's that. not a thing. Winning it. <laughs> because she knows he'll talk the whole time and she won't have to. And yeah. then she can say she did it. Yeah. You know, that obviously then doesn't last. And then... She immediately overcompensates and completely develops this like mom replacement relationship where she even asks, can I call you mom? And she stalks her and (laughs) confronts her and and butts in her life and and tells her that her boyfriend sucks and just wants this woman's approval. Yeah, we just tried to write what would be a believable storyline for someone who doesn't want to be in therapy, but also... She starts to, in the most rudimentary way, put together the bare bones of human psychology. Like, she literally, with wide-eyed wonder, says, wait, you mean things that happened to me as a child affects how I behave now? Like, she just, (laughs) she never put that together. (laughs) And the whole reason she's doing this is for her relationship and for her boyfriend. Yeah. And so that's not a great way to go into therapy. (laughs) Agreeing to be medicated is probably good for her in a vacuum, but it's our way of showing begrudging character growth. Like, she's actually making a sacrifice for a relationship. Mm. And for someone like Gretchen, that's a giant step. Romantic comedies... I think I saw a story, I can't even remember where now, but it just sort of like the film industry has stopped making them and... Uh, this is a rom-com. I mean, what do you just think about the future of rom-coms? Or is it? You know, one one can be tempted to say everything's cyclical. Romantic comedy is just going through a down period yeah. from Annie Hall through When Harry Met Sally and the Hugh Granty, Louis Armstrong scored um, <laughs> rom-coms through the sort of to the derivative kind of pale <laughs> imitations <laughs> with Reese Witherspoon and, and Catherine Heigl. And then it died, right? That was the death knell, or at least that's the 30-year cycle. Have rom-coms come and gone? Well, I think, you know, musicals and westerns are a tiny bit narrower in terms of their relationship to the uh, human experience. And romance, the quest for love, the game of it, that probably is a little closer to human experience. Right. And probably a little more evergreen. Yeah. 
It's a good, uh, it's a good character desire. It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, it's not going to go away. I think they just need to be reinvented. And so while this was just a show on my list and something I wanted to do as a tonic for my past experience, coming out of being a big fan of rom-coms, watching that 30-year cycle and wondering what's next for him and thinking that I could do it better and do something new with it, at least. And we didn't usher in this great golden age, but certainly I'm very realistic about the modesty of our influence and reach, but I do think that by pure timing or actual influence or both, there has been a slight, small little resurgence of rom-coms that try to treat young romance in a slightly more believable way. And I think that's a good thing. Well, listen, this has been great. I'm really glad you made some time to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Showrunners. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Acast and iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps.